This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of December 7th through December 11th, 2020. On Monday, December 7th, we have the contestants John Vigna, a communications manager from Los Angeles, California, Amy Kimmel, a career counselor originally from Bend, Oregon, and Catherine Ryan, a nonprofit executive originally from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, whose one-day cash winnings total $22,801. We get the Jeopardy round categories, history, a look back, which makes sense, trading places, empty words, Bridges, literary video games, and that's twisted. Mm-hmm. Trading places was it sounds like trading places, but it's a, it's about like stock exchanges and stuff. Yeah. I should have pronounced yeah. it trading places. Yeah. Either way, I bet you liked the literary video games category. Oh, you know I did. Yeah, I know you did. I ran it. They did not. Mm, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll nerd out on a little bit. Two hundred dollar clue. Alamut, a 1938 novel by Vladimir Bartol uh, about fanatical killers, inspired the hit video game This Creed. That's Assassin's Creed. I love the Assassin's Creed games. Not all of them are good, but I still love them. (laughs) We had a triple stumper at the $800 level. With flowing white hair, Geralt of Rivia is a monster slayer in this video game series based on the stories of Andres Sapkowski. I don't know how to actually pronounce it. And that is The Witcher. I've heard of that. Yeah, I've played all of those games. They are all very good. Uh, But yeah, there's also a Netflix series now starring Henry Cavill. Oh, that's probably actually why I've heard of it. All right. Um, We get the first Daily Double in the Bridges category at the $800 level as the 19th pick. And John finds it. He has 3,800 at that point. Um, He's in a a pretty good lead. Amy's at 1,600. Catherine's at 1,000. He wagers just 800, the true value of the clue, and gets the clue. Not everything in this city is 500 years old. The Constitution Bridge over the Grand Canal opened in 2008. And... He seemed to be guessing when he said, what is Venice? And he was surprised, looked surprised to me when he got it correct. Yeah. But I think of Venice as having canals. I'm (laughs) not sure I knew that there was a Grand Canal. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so I, like him, I couldn't think of anything but Venice, but I was worried that was wrong because maybe I thought maybe there was some other city I was supposed to know that had a canal Mm -hmm. instead of canals. Right. Yeah. And nobody knew Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the earth was without form and blank in the empty words category. Mm -hmm. That's void. I guess it's fair for it to be a thousand dollar clue, but it was very much in my wheelhouse. Sure. It is. It is specifically, though, name this exact word from the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is that's a that's a tall order for many yeah. <laughs> for good reason and i think we've talked about this before that in jeopardy they rely heavily on the king james version mm. um uh 
And so if you're familiar with some other likely newer version that can lead you astray, although I guess if they don't specify in a particular clue or category, then and the response you give is in a newer version, then they then they may be obligated to take it. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, John is in the lead at 6,600. Amy has 3,800. Catherine has 1,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Oxford's Very Short Introductions, American Accessions, Planetary Extremes, Museums, Movie Goofs, and You Before E. That Movie Goofs category was all about, like, uh you know, mistakes in production, like... Yeah, like continuity errors. Yeah, yeah, and things you shouldn't have seen on, on camera that made it on, which is uh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, in Pretty Woman, a croissant that the main character is eating is somehow replaced by pancakes, what appears to be seconds later. Um, they mm-hmm. were asking for the actress, that's Julia Roberts... At the $1,600 we level we had in 1955, Marty plays a Gibson ES-345 guitar, but that hadn't been made yet. Maybe there was an extra trip in this 1985 pick. Uh, and that's Back to the Future. Catherine got that one. Um, so yeah, fun category. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. They started out in Oxford's very short introductions, but then they went and ran down the Planetary Extremes category. John seemed to do seemed to know his planets pretty well. He found the second Daily Double at the $1,600 level in that category. He was up to a big lead at 9,000 over Catherine's 2,600 and Amy's 3,800, and he wagered 3,000. And the clue was, it's the windiest planet, with storms like the Great Dark Spot observed by Voyager 2. And he knew that right off the bat with what is Neptune either from the great dark spot or probably or, or Voyager 2 both are both are pointers there. Yep. Oh, over in the museums category at the $1600 level, we had Grant Wood's American Gothic resides at the Art Institute of this city, built for the Columbian Exposition of 1893, and we talked about that in my World's Fair deep dives. Yeah, uh, that's that's Chicago. Yeah. That's always fun when those come back around. Yes, um, it is. All right. <laughs> and we will mention it every time. Every time. Um, yeah. And Daily Double number three is in the Oxford's very short introductions category. Um, that is where they started, but they didn't come back to it until the end of the round. And at the 29th pick, Catherine found this Daily Double at a $2,000 level and wagered all of her 7,800. John was at 22,000 at this point. So she's got to make a move to get into contention here. Um, Amy's at 9,800. And Catherine gets the clue. A very short introduction to him says that like Marx and Freud, this 18th century economist's work is more invoked than it is read. And she correctly responded, who is Smith? Adam Smith. Yeah, that was a good poll. Yeah. Yeah, so with that big daily double at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Catherine is up to 16,400, which means she is within easy striking distance of John's 22,000, and Amy is in third at 9,800. And they get the Final Jeopardy categories, fan- Final Jeopardy category, Fantastic Beasts. And the clue is Symbols of Strength in the Bible 
include Behemoth and this horned creature, perhaps an extinct wild ox, which the King James Version mentions nine times. This was a triple stumper. Amy wagered 9,700 and guessed what is a manticore. As far as, you know, fantastic beasts go, not a bad guess. But that is incorrect. Catherine wagered everything. Bigger bet than was needed and... It cost her the game. Cost her the game. And she guessed what is a gorgon. Uh, they're both taking taking from uh, Greek mythology there. Yes. Uh, that's also incorrect. And John wagered 10,801, which is a cover bet. And he wrote, what is the beast? That is also incorrect. The correct answer is a unicorn. Mm-hmm. This caused a large proportion of Americans to text whatever clergy person they knew. Um, <laughs> there were unicorns in the Bible? Seriously. There was a, there were threads in the in the secret Facebook groups uh, commiserating about this uh, where I, I jumped in. It was a Jeopardy nerd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I mentioned the King James version and Jeopardy's reliance on it earlier when we were talking about this game back in the in the single Jeopardy round because it's kind of on my mind because of this. The King James version, it's not the most reliable. Mm-hmm. It, it is certainly the most beloved. It has majesty and poetry and it translates... It has artistic license. Yeah. It translates the name of an extinct wild ox as unicorn. In honor of Scotland. Yeah. That's, we'll go with that. (laughs) Um, yeah. I'm actually, I'm surprised nobody went with, um, I I thought the neg bait here was Leviathan. Oh, I, I got stuck on Leviathan and was like, that's the only other beast from the Bible I can think of. Yeah. Because I kept wanting to say Behemoth, but I'm like, no. They, they gave that name in the, in the clue. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the King James Version translates this uh, this animal as unicorn. Because, cool. I don't know, that's what they did. So, John's our champion as we go to Tuesday. Uh, where we have Cody Lawrence, an assistant editor from Sherman Oaks, California. Kristen Thomas McGill, a graduate student, originally from Louisville, Kentucky. And John Vigna a communications manager from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $11,199. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Founding Fathers Speak, The Helpful Web, Entertainment, Geographic Fours, Collabs, and You've Got Animal Mail. Mail spelled M-A-L-E in this case. I know that producing the four states of the four corners probably is not impressive to you. Nope. (laughs) I would say coming up with four of anything in kind of a high pressure quiz show situation um, with a limited amount of time, you know, takes some doing. Yeah. No, uh, I I won't, I won't disagree with you there. Yeah. Four is just a, four of anything is a lot. It's maybe especially if there's not a like a designated order for them. That's true, because if you're used to listing things out, you can usually just like get the list. Yeah. Like, in the order that you're used to, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in sequence. But if there's not an obvious sequence, that it can get tricky. Um, but it was nice to see Cody 
get in the geographic fours category at the $800 level. These four states meet at the USA's Four Corners Monument. He had to struggle a little bit, I think, to kind of keep track of what he'd said and what he hadn't said, maybe. Mm -hmm. But he got them all. uh, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. Yeah. We get uh, Daily Double number one in the collabs category. Uh, It's pick number 21. Cody finds it. He is at 4,600, which is ahead of John's 3,600 and Kristen's 2,800. And he goes all in. I think that's a good call there. Yep. Agreed. And he gets the clue. The so-called glorious or bloodless revolution of 1688 put this pair on the throne of England. Cody guesses who are King Henry VIII and Catherine the Great. (laughs) That's a power couple right there. (laughs) Um, uh, To my knowledge, Henry VIII and Catherine the Great were never married. Mm -hmm. But no, that is William and Mary. That is Mary, I believe, daughter of James II and her husband, William of Orange of the Netherlands. Mm. Which I have mentioned more than once in deep dives. Yeah, I guess you have. In both the English royal houses and the prime ministers. I was like over here noting to myself that like wives of Henry VIII would be a good deep dive topic. And then I was like, nope, that wasn't that was that was the incorrect response. Right. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm not sure that who wrote Pirates of Penzance is a $1,000 clue, but maybe I'm just biased. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like that, the, the $1,000 clue and the $600 clue perhaps should have been switched. Flipped. Because yeah. Lerner and Lowe is like, yeah, they're, they're known names, but like not as well known, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the clue they used for Rogers for uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, the the uh, other set of names they could have used Gilbert here. And Sullivan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the clue they used for Gilbert and Sullivan was Thespis was the first collaboration by this pair. It wasn't as successful as their other works, like the Pirates of Penzance. I feel like you could make it a thousand dollar clue by changing that out to like some other like more obscure Gilbert and Sullivan shit like they would go on to collaborate on other works such as Iolanthe. Sure. You know, like but if you're gonna put like their bet their single best known work, like I feel like Gilbert and Sullivan are not on their own thousand dollar material. Anyway. Uh at the end of the Jeopardy round, John is at forty six hundred, Kristen is at forty two hundred, and Cody is at twenty two hundred. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories, Languages, Live Albums, A Napoleon Complex, Energy, Authors Alma Maters, and Words That Should Rhyme. Mm-hmm. In the Authors Alma Maters category, we had a reversal at the $400 level. Um, the clue there was studying French and classics. She graduated from England's University of Exeter, not Hogwarts, in 1987. The Harry Potter universe came up a couple times this week. John rang in and said, who is J.K. Rowling's? And that was accepted, but they identified afterwards that he had added an S. Mm-hmm. So that was reversed when the Daily Double came up. And so effectively, we had a triple stumper right. <laughs> on, on J.K. Rowling at the $400 level. I'm sure somebody would have picked it up had they had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number Two comes up in the energy category at the $1,600 level. It's the 15th pick, and John finds it. He has $6,200. He's in 
third place, but pretty close, uh, with Christian at 7,800 and Cody at 8,600. And John Wager is 2,400 and gets the clue, the theory that the total amount of energy in the universe is constant is the first law of this branch of physics. And he guesses what is general physics, but that's thermodynamics. Yep. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three is back in that author's alma mater's category. Uh, it's at the $1,200 level. Kristen finds it. She is at 11000 which is slightly in the lead ahead of Cody's 10200 and John's 6200 uh, And she wagers 4000 She gets the clue. One of his professors at Cornell was William Strunk Jr., whose elements of style he would later revise. Uh, and she got that correct with uh, who is E.B. White. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of that. Yeah. I knew Strunk and White were the authors of Elements of Style. Hmm. And I knew that was E.B. White. Interesting. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round... Kristen is in the lead with 15,800. Cody's in second place with 11,400. John has 7,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, the ancient world. And the clue is he got to propose his own sentence and joked that since he was actually a benefactor of the state, he should get free meals. (laughs) John wagered 6,000 and responded, who is Socrates? And that is correct. Cody wagered 2,601. He is trying to cover an all-in from John. Um, That makes perfect sense strategically. But he responds, who is Brutus? So that's not correct. He drops down. And Kristen makes a cover bet with 7,001 and correctly responds, who is Socrates? So uh, Kristen is our winner with $22,801. And that takes us into Wednesday, when we get the contestants Kendra Blanchett, a registered dietitian from Elk Grove, California, Jason Grote, a writer from Los Angeles, California, and Kristen Thomas McGill, a graduate student originally from Louisville, Kentucky, whose one-day cash winnings total $22,801. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, historic English counties, clothes-minded, people of the book, computer languages, USA, USA, uh, USA in quotation marks, and Ken Jennings knows the goat, which is greatest of all time. So he's presenting Mm -hmm. on greats in history. Yes. And of course, I swept the computer languages category. Nice. Yeah. And the contestants did all right with it as well. Um, We did have a funny moment. They left it for last, uh, the whole category. The first clue at the $200 level was developed by Bjarna Strustrup. This is why Alex does this, not me. Uh, (laughs) This letter, plus plus, is one of the first computer languages that college students learn. And Kendra responded, what is basic? That's incorrect. Kristen picked it up with C. Then we had a question with a a logo that they had to identify. That's what is Java. And then at the $600 level, in the acronym for this computer language created at Dartmouth in the 1960s, the first letter stands for beginners um and at that point kendra got to ring back in and say what is basic and be correct that's right 
Um, we also had HTML and Python. Yeah. yeah. I used to tutor computer programming in Python. Really? I was At my college, you had to have gotten a B plus or better in a course to tutor for that course. And I took the computer science class for non-computer science majors mm. um, and did fine in it. It really would have made more sense to have computer science majors tutor that <laughs> class. But the process was like a little too automated. Um, and they took the computer science classes that were for computer science majors. So uh, really only humanities majors were eligible to tutor that class. So I, I was one of those tutors. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Daily Double number one comes up in the people of the book category, which turns out to be two or three characters, and you are supposed to name the book they're from. It's at the $600 level. Kristen finds it as the ninth pick. She makes it a true daily double with $2,200. Um, she's in a solid lead at that point. Kendra has $1,200. Jason has $400. And she gets the clue, John Yosarian and Milo Minderbinder. And she guesses the Bible, <laughs> which is Why not? great. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was super charming. Um, uh, the correct response here is Catch-22. Yeah. I'm not sure how I knew that. I've never read it, but I, I feel like, I don't know, those those names are very, like, very notable, right? Very, very memorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't know, I, I must have heard that at some point and that stuck in my brain. Yeah. I was initially perplexed and then catch 22 just came to me i did try to read it once but it was like i was recovering from having teeth pulled and mm. i i had like i had like the good pain meds you know oh, um, yeah. and i couldn't really i couldn't really read sure yeah at the end of the jeopardy round Kristen has 5600 kendra is in second place with 4000 jason has 3000 and we have the double jeopardy categories a trip to Bergtonville. Um, each correct response will have one of those three endings, Bergton or Ville. Mm-hmm. Newspapers. During the Renaissance, botany. 21st century Tony winners and common Latin. In the common Latin category, the $2,000 level. I've noticed this and I don't know why it is. A Latin word for soul or spirit. Today in English, it means a hostile feeling. Kristen got that one that is animus mm-hmm. i don't know why it came to mean hostility yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really follow from the latin word itself yeah i don't know something about this week felt kind of repetitive like it felt like we kept getting like plant categories hmm. and there was another thing that kept that came up a few times i can't remember and yeah i mean it's it's Jeopardy. They're going to cover the same kind of yeah domains over and over. But I don't know. Botany, I was like, didn't we just have something like that? Or maybe the, maybe Botany was the first one and then there was another one similar later. one later. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, well. Yeah. Both Daily Doubles come pretty late in the round. Uh, Daily Double number two is pick number 25. It's in the trip to Bergtonville category at the $1,200 level. Kendra finds it. She is... Tied for the lead at 14,800 with Kristen, and Jason is back at 3,000. Uh, Jason wasn't really able to get in much, it seemed like. And Kendra wagered 3,000. She got the clue. 
If you like your Christmas days around 90 degrees, then this world capital, home to the University of the West Indies, is for you. And she took a moment to think about it, um, but she came around to the correct response, which, uh, which was Kingston. I'm not sure how many other uh, tons or vills or bergs there are that are capitals in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, good work there. And then uh, four clues later, we have Daily Double number three, and this one is in the newspapers category. Um, Jason had just gotten the $2,000 clue in that category, um, responding that the main daily in Austin, Texas is the American Statesman. And then at the 1200 he revealed Daily Double 3, um, and he had 3000 and made it a true Daily Double, uh, trying to get into contention. Uh, Kristen was at 13200 Kendra's at 19400 and he got the clue, newspaper, newspaper on the wall. This London one was originally founded in 1903 for women, one and all. And he guessed what is the Times, but the correct response here is the mirror. Mm-hmm. Got a little Snow White reference going on in the clue here. Right. So he dropped to zero, but then in a very exciting last <laughs> clue moment, $1,600 level we had Cleveland has one major daily, and this two-word paper is it. I have never heard of this, um, no, but he had. <laughs> uh, it is the Plain Dealer, and he got that and got went from zero to sixteen hundred at the last possible second and got to participate in Final Jeopardy. Yeah, so going into Final Jeopardy, Kendra's in the lead at nineteen thousand four hundred. Kristen is at thirteen thousand two hundred, and Jason is alive at sixteen hundred. And they get the. Final Jeopardy category, American Lit. And the clue is, a book by him says, From the forest came the call, distinct and definite, as never before, a long-drawn howl. And uh, that was, to me, fairly gettable. We see that all the uh, contestants got it as well. Jason wagered everything and put who is Jack London, which is correct. Kristen wagered 8,000. Also got it correct with who is Jack London, and Kendra made a cover bet of 7,001 and got it correct as well. So she is the winner going into Thursday. That's right. And on Thursday, we have Becca Jones, an attorney from Phoenix, Arizona. Gabriel DeRoche, a PhD student originally from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And Kendra Blanchett, a registered dietitian from Elk Grove, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,401. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Let's Make a Supergroup, Brand Names, Leo Poporio, <laughs> Ends in Double S, All Roads, and To Lead Rome. <laughs> we did have a lot of Rome and Latin stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. Pointing that out now, I'm, I'm remembering that and noticing that. Mm-hmm. And like Italy-centric, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got nervous when they couldn't get the $200 level of Let's Make a Super Group. The clue was on lead guitar, this lefty from Seattle, who was a paratrooper before joining up with Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. Nobody knew that was Jimi Hendrix. But and I thought, are we going to have like the infamous football category, but with pop music? But then they got the rest of the responses. So, yeah, I did initially think that it was going to be a 
category about supergroups. So yeah, uh, rather, rather than soloists. Yeah. yeah. Also, so ends in double S, four hundred dollar level. The clue was navel oranges are known for being this, and it was a triple stumper. Apparently, navel oranges are supposed to be seedless. Am I, I getting the wrong ones? I I don't know. <laughs> that is something I've never thought about or noticed. So. Yeah, I don't know. Mine are definitely not seedless. I think. <laughs> I think you think? How do I, do you not know? I'm frequently annoyed that my oranges have seeds in them, and I'm pretty sure they're navel oranges. Okay. Yes, I. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I don't like navel oranges. Like the clue came up, and I was like, navel oranges are be- are known for being this, and then like the first word to come to my mind was disappointing, <laughs> um, <laughs> which doesn't end in double S. No, it um, doesn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They're just not as good as many of the other citrus in that same category we get daily double number one it's down at the thousand dollar level uh this was where they started so it's pick number five uh, kendra finds it she is in the lead at 800 over becca's 600 and gabriel's 200 and she wagers the full allowable thousand she gets the clue it's been said that when you look into this from the greek for bottomless it also looks into you. And she gets that right with uh, what is abyss or the abyss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I was expecting that word to come up in the um, empty words category. But mm. here it is. Here it is now. A couple days yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Oh, and we had we had a sad triple miss in the all roads category at the $1,000 level. Um, the clue was the Karakoram Highway connects China to this country via the Himalayas and Hindu Kush. And Becca guessed what is India. Gabriel guessed what is Nepal. Kendra guessed what is Tibet. Um, The correct response there is Pakistan. But I guess no harm, no foul, since they all lost the thousand. Yeah, that's that's fair. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Kendra's in the lead at 7,800. Gabriel is back at 1,800 and Becca's at 2,000. We get the double Jeopardy categories Aww, inspiring. What's that on your head? Very puritanical. Game shows. Needless verbiage. And literature titles by last word. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was fun. We had at the $400 level a 2005 bestseller tattoo. Um, That is, of course, the girl with the dragon tattoo. At this $800 level, an 1820 story hollow. Uh, Gabriel rang in and said, what is Sleepy Hollow? Uh, Alex prompted him for more. Um, Mm -hmm. He couldn't come up with anything, so Becca got the rebound there. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is the full title of the story. Um, That is, of course, right by me. Uh, 1969 memoir at the $1,200 level, uh, Sings. Um, That's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. At the $1,600 level, a 1989 immigrant story, Club. Kendra got that one with the Joy Luck Club. And then at the $2,000 level, a 1939 Hollywood tale, Locust. Nobody knew that one. That's the day of the locust. Yeah. Daily Double number two comes up as the 19th pick in Very Puritanical. And I liked this category a lot. I have a 
background in American religious history, so nobody's surprised that I like this category a lot, but I like this category a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so at the at the two thousand dollar level we find we find the Daily Double, or rather Becca does. And uh she wagers three thousand uh of her six thousand. Kendra's at sixteen thousand two hundred at this point, and Gabriel is at twenty six hundred. And Becca gets the clue. Last name of Richard, who was too Puritan for England, and founded a dynasty of stern ministers in North America. Mm-hmm. Oh man, like this clue's got my name on it. Um, <laughs> uh, Becca guessed Quaker. That's not a bad guess. This is Mather, the Mathers, uh, yes. Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, um, Increase Mather. What a name. <laughs> what a name and what a man. Yeah. Um oh man. Have you seen the meme that was going around about how millennials should name their children in Puritan style but with millennial values like um <laughs> <laughs> you know, like hydrate matter and um self care matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh body shame not brown. <laughs> right. Um yeah. Anyway, yeah. I disagree with the Mathers about everything, but they were very important in uh, (laughs) (laughs) literally everything. Um, But they were super important. And um, I I don't know. I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for them. Spare the rod and spoil the child. (laughs) Fact checking my recollection here, but I'm correct. Richard Mather uh, wrote the Halfway Covenant. Um, the halfway covenant is a really super fun thing in American religious history. I hope you're not doing your deep dive about the Mathers. Um, no. Uh, uh, yeah. I? Oh, well, cause, cause I'm going to take 30 seconds for the halfway covenant here. So here's the thing, right? Like all of these religious zealots left England to go to America to have like a special like land for very, very religious Christian people of a particular theological persuasion, various theological persuasions in different areas, right? But religious, like, piety is not necessarily hereditary. So they felt very strongly that you should have, like, your, like, personal devotion to the Christian faith in order to be baptized. And then they had children, (laughs) Um, and so the halfway covenant permits the children of like full church members to also be members of the church, even if they have not had their own sort of personal religious conversion experience and like made their full like profession of faith. I think I just said baptism, but it wasn't like they weren't Baptists. They did infant baptism, I believe. Um, so, but yeah, there it was, it, it was this thing of like, oh, you know, there should be a very high kind of standard for what it takes to be a church member. And then, like, the kids were not necessarily on board because, like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, because right. of course they weren't. Um, and so, like, within one generation, they have to, like, completely redo their standards of, like, what it means to be a church member, um, lest they not have any. Um, right. Yeah, so that that was Richard Mather and then his, his descendants uh, also had um, important contributions. Anyway. We have, we have one of... Emily's favorite things here, uh, Daily Double number three, is the very next pick. Yep. Becca finds it. She is $3,000 lower than she just was, and the other scores are the same. 
This one is at the $2,000 level in the what's that on your head category. She wagers 2000 and she gets the clue, Twas the night before Christmas, has Mama in this headgear and I in my cap. She gets that right. That is a kerchief. Mm-hmm. I can understand not wanting to make it a true daily double, but with first place so far ahead, I yeah. think um, this might be the might time be the for time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And she made a little bit of a push from that point and was able to pick up a little more. She had a rough miss at the $2,000 level of game shows. Um, the clue there was a popular music identifying app is in the name of this Jamie Foxx game show. She guessed what is Shazam. Shazam is the app, but the game show is Beat Shazam. Beat Shazam. Yeah, so she she dropped down 2000 which is especially a bummer because if she'd gotten that one, it would not have been a lock game. Um, right. But at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Kendra is in a lock position with 20,200. Gabriel has 1,800. Becca has 7,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, European Geography. And the clue, once a residence of rulers of Austria, this city on the Danube, less than 20 miles from Vienna, became a national capital in 1993. Gabriel wagers everything but $15 um, and guesses what is Salzburg. That's incorrect. Becca wagers 3000 um, and also guesses what is Salzburg. Kendra wagers 6000 which is close to as much as she can do without risking her lock. Mm-hmm. And she guesses what is Sarajevo. And that is incorrect as well. Alex reminds them that 1993 um, is significant because when Czechoslovakia broke up, Prague continued as a capital but of the Czech Republic, and then Bratislava is the capital of Slovakia. So Bratislava was the correct response here. Yep, indeed. So that takes us into Friday. And on Friday, we have the contestants Kate Freeman, a financial analyst originally from Lake Orion, Michigan, Nizar Abdallah, a finance manager from San Mateo, California, and Kendra Blanchett, a registered dietitian from Elk Grove, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $40,601. And we get the Jeopardy round categories Quotable Women, Fictional Places, The Not-So-Wild West, Wishful Thinking, In the Sports Hall of Fame, and British English. They started in the British English category, which was nice. I appreciated that. Mm Mm-hmm. And they knew their British English. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got all of these on the first uh, attempt. I thought they were all pretty gettable. Yeah, I didn't think there were any deep pulls there. Yeah. What we call pants, the British call trousers. And pants, for the British, means underwear. Mm -hmm. That, uh... That can lead to some humorous misunderstandings. Yes. Also, napkin. Maybe not in Britain. I don't know about in Britain. But other English-speaking countries that are from that, like South Africa. I know this from my Mm -hmm. wife's family. And napkin is a sanitary pad for women. Oh. So if you are at a restaurant and you ask for a napkin, you will probably get a weird look. I mean, now now people would probably know, like, oh, that's the American word. But, uh... Yeah. What you'd want is a serviette. Oh. Okay. Let's 
that's the French word for it, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. But for whatever reason, that's the one that they used. So. Yeah. The not-so-wild West was all about kind of mundane and domestic, not violent, cultured <laughs> things happening in... In the Old West. In, yeah. in the Old West, yes. <laughs> I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, some ladies founding an art gallery in a Texas city. They didn't get that one. That was Fort Worth. Located then is now on Last Chance Gulch, the Lewis and Clark Library in this state capital was Montana's first. Uh, that's Helena, of course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought that was uh, I thought that was a fun conceit. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. clever. Yeah, Daily Double number one comes up in quotable women at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, Kendra finds this one. And wagers one thousand of her forty four hundred dollars. Um, she's in a lead at this point. Kate has thirty two hundred. Nizar has twenty six hundred. And she gets the clue. In nineteen eighty one, she told the Senate Judiciary Committee, "I do well understand the difference between legislating and judging." Um, Kendra guesses who is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but this is Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, I think she kind of just snapped that off a little too quick. Yeah, if you check the year, um, that should make it obvious. We know um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a Clinton nominee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the second female Supreme Court justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, being the first. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kendra has the lead with 4,800. Kate is in second place at 3,600. Nazar has 1,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, the movie's title question – Colorful verbs, plants and flowers, A, P, history, A, and P in quotation marks. Each correct response will begin with one of those letters. Mm-hmm. South Park, and you know, I learned something today. Okay. <laughs> nice. Uh, the South Park category was not about South Park, sadly. Yeah, it was about parks in the southern United States. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two shows up pretty early. It's in the AP history category. That's where they started at the $400 level. Uh, it's picked number four of the round. It's down at the $1,600 level. Uh, Nazar finds this. He uh, is at $3,800, just ahead of Kate's $3,600, behind Kendra's $5,200. And he wages $2,000. Uh, and he gets the clue. One of Puerto Rico's largest cities is named in honor of a descendant of this Spanish explorer. He doesn't know. He, I think he just picks a name of a uh, Puerto Rican city that he knows and says, what is San Juan? Uh, mm-hmm. But the correct response is, who is Ponce de Leon? And the city is Ponce. Yes. If we can detour for a moment to the movie's title question before I take us to Daily Double Three. Oh, for sure. Um I was in a little bit of um, a Twitter conversation about uh, the movie's title question, the $1,200 level. Um, The clue is, in an 80s movie, Judge Doom was the one who framed this tune for murder. Kate responded and did not say what is. Um, Kate simply responded, who framed Roger Rabbit? Which is a question. Mm -hmm. And it was accepted because any question which gives the 
intended response um, is considered accept- acceptable in That's Jeopardy. That's right. Yes. <laughs> it was the form of a question, and she got Roger Rabbit. So there you yes. go. Yeah, so um, this was looking for not the full title, but just the name of the character, Roger Rabbit. Um, so you could quibble about whether who framed adds extraneous information or, uh, but, you know, but clearly the Jeopardy judges thought this was appropriate. Um, And so I I did as well. It seemed to fit with what we'd been told um, in our contestant briefings. And what they tell the contestants is as long as it is phrased as a question, they are supposed to accept the response, but please don't try to be cute Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) because it might backfire on you. And it's much better to just kind of get into the habit of starting with what is than to try to be creative. (laughs) Um, Right. uh, Annoy Alex, maybe trip yourself up. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And Um, slow down the pace of the game, too. Right. Yeah. There was a there was a notable Jeopardy moment a while back. Um, I think we've talked about it on the podcast and you might remember the details better than I do. But there was some particular response that a contestant gave that was incorrect. And then a few questions later, another clue pointed to the thing that she had incorrectly guessed before. And so then she rang in and said something like, it's not Eisenhower now, is it? Yeah, or um, something like that. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it was Eisenhower. Um, I just I just picked the name of a president. But it was, and that was a question. And so her phrasing, it's not Eisenhower now, is it? Or, you know, whatever the correct mm-hmm. response was there um, was accepted. Anyway, yeah, so I thought that was that was some interesting chatter happening on Twitter. Sure. At the bottom of that category, we got Alex Trebek's favorite movie, mm-hmm. which... As I'm saying that now, I realize having that tidbit will not be as useful to potential contestants. It's of declining value. Yes. Now it is simply a factoid rather than some a conversation piece you could have. Yeah. That was a tough clue. The clue was, uh, for Hugh Morgan and the other miners in this John Ford film, their home area is verdant indeed. Uh, Kendra guessed, what is how green is my valley? Kate guessed, how green is the valley? And Nazar got in at the end with How Green Was My Valley, which is the correct mm-hmm. title. Uh, and that was yes. Alex Trebek's favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And then Daily Double number three comes up in the plants and flowers category. I told you there was plants and flowers coming back. You're right. You're right. It's the 28th pick. It's at the $2,000 level. Nazar finds it. Wagers 2000 of his 3,800. Kendra is at 8,000 at this point, and Kate is at 12,000. And Nazar gets the clue. The acidity of the soil can change the color of these flowers, whose name is from the Greek for water. He freezes for a minute and guesses, what are hydrodondas? Um, so he was trying to kind of work it out, like, mm-hmm. like, the, like a flower name wasn't coming to him so he tried to come up with something based on kind of a greek root for water um uh and he wasn't too far off hydrangeas yep is the correct response here uh so at the end of the double jeopardy round kendra is at 9200 nazar is at 1800 and kate is in the lead at 12,000. and they get the category broadway revivals 
And the final Jeopardy clue is ads for the 2020 revival of this musical said, something's coming, something good. A new it movie. It was wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a new movie version is also coming. It was, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it was wrong for the contestants, at least, because this was a triple stumper. Nazar uh, wagered seventeen eighty five and guessed what is wicked. Uh, that is incorrect, so he's down to fifteen dollars. Kendra wagered fifty five hundred, which would keep her above Nazar's all in. If she got it wrong, which she did, she guessed what is sweet charity, so she went down to thirty seven hundred. Kate also guessed what is wicked with a bet of sixty four oh one. So Kate ended up at fifty five ninety nine. Which means that Kendra's wager was a bit too big. Yeah. Yeah, it kept her above Nazar's potential all-in, but it, in this case, when Kate got it wrong, it dropped her below Kate's cover bit. So. Right. Oh, but the correct response, I didn't say that. The correct response is West Side Story. Yes. Uh, Wicked hasn't closed yet. It's... It, it's still on its original run? I, I believe it is still on its original run. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't quite believe it, and I thought I'd seen something else in that space. I was wrong. I'd seen something else near that space. But yes, as uh, Wikipedia says, as of March 12, 2020, the show suspended production due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The show's production will be suspended until June 1, 2021 at the earliest. But yeah, it was. it looks like it was still in its original run when the pandemic hit. That is awesome. Yeah. So, uh, lucky break for Kate, um, but she mm -hmm. played very, very capably and strategically. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing her on Monday. Yeah. So that's the week. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we will more quickly kind of go through our rigmarole. We have a Patreon. You can check it out, patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, but we encourage you to direct your money and time and energy towards social justice, uh, Whatever that may look like for you and your community, whatever you think is best is what we encourage you to do. If you're not sure, we point you toward communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. They have links and information and resources to help guide you in that regard. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and the pandemic is more of a pandemic than it's ever been at this point yep. in the United States. Um, uh, We're not we vaccinated yet. We're not vaccinated. Eventually, some people will be. That's great. Let's get everyone to that point. Mm -hmm. um, so please uh, wear your mask. Um, cancel your cancelable events. You'd be surprised how many of those are. So yeah, let's uh, let's let's do the right thing. Yes. Just if the end is in sight. Yeah, but the good one. Hopefully, yeah. not the bad yes. one. <laughs> uh, all right. What are your deep dive guesses? All right. Um, are we talking about Sequoia? We are not. I strongly considered that. All right. What about Brasilia? We are not talking about Brasilia, but that was also, I also had that thought as well. All right. I, I'm not sure if this is a, a guess or a hope. Are we talking about Dolly Parton? No, we're not. Okay. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable enough with her repertoire to be able to really do that. I realize I would, I, a lot of what I talk about with deep dives is something I don't know about before, but 
she's still alive, so it feels yeah. a little different to me. I don't know. I don't know. Fair enough. Well, um, the the podcast, uh, it's a, like a like a limited whatever. Uh, Dolly Parton's America was excellent. Ooh. Um, yeah, I just I just plug other podcasts for free. I just liked it. Yeah, it was it was a very fun listen. Um, and I think it was like maybe six 45 minute episodes or something very manageable. You were on the right day for two of those guesses. You were looking at Monday, uh, but we're looking in the double jeopardy category in the American accessions uh, mm-hmm. at the twelve hundred dollar level. It was triple stumper and it was actually a triple neg. Uh, the clue is the Newlands Resolution of 1898 brought these islands under formal U.S. control. Catherine guessed what are the Virgin Islands, John guessed what are the Mariana Islands, and Amy guessed what are the Marshall Islands. But that's Hawaiian Islands. Oh, So we great. are going to talk about the history of the Hawaiian Islands. Now, of course... That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, my two disclaimers. One, there is an immense amount of history to any part of the world no matter what we're talking about, but Hawaii in particular, I'm going to gloss over a number of things and go quickly and, and all of that. And uh, second thing is there are plenty of Hawaiian names that I will do my best to pronounce. I have looked up pronunciations, but I will probably get them wrong, not out of ignorance or arrogance, but simply lack of practice. All right, so Hawaii, of course, is an archipelago, a chain of islands in the Pacific uh, it is, by certain measures, the largest uh, single island chain in the world. The date of its first settlements is a topic of continued debate. Uh, some books and studies and arguments date the first Polynesian settlements to around 300 AD or CE. Others suggest as late as 600. Others suggest even later, and the most recent carbon dating survey evidence uh, puts the arrival of the first settlers at around 940 to 1130. So we're not really sure. (laughs) It's basically (laughs) what I'm saying. Uh, But it was uh, ancient Polynesians, and the history of the ancient Polynesians was passed down through genealogy chants, you know, uh, oral history. And it is said that the uh, genealogy of the high chiefs could be traced back to the period believed to be inhabited only by gods. And so for a long time, the noble class or the royal class in Hawaii were considered to be divine in some way. By about 1000 AD, settlements uh, around the perimeters of the islands were beginning to cultivate food in gardens. So uh, very early on, there was like agriculture on the Hawaiian islands. A Tahitian priest named Pa'au is said to have brought a new order to the islands around 1200, and this new order included new laws and a new social structure that separated people into classes. And so those classes were uh, the king and the nobility, with the high priests below them, and then the commoners, and then the lowest-ranking class below them. So the the terms are uh, Ali'i Nui was the king, and the Kohina are the nobility, the Ali'i are the royal nobles, and the Kahunas are the high priest, or the Kahuna class are the high priests, which is where we get that word. Uh, and then there are the commoners and, the, and the, the lowest caste below them. So it established a pretty strict caste system, a taboo system. Uh, this was called Kapu, this code of conduct. The Hawaiian social order was very uh, regimented and had pretty strict rules. And that system lasted until after the death of Kamehameha I. 
around that same time that the uh, kapu was abandoned, the Hawaiian religion was also abandoned. Uh, the Hawaiian religion was very similar to uh, other Polynesian religions. Polytheistic, with four major deities, Kane, Ku, Lono, and Kanoloa, and then various lesser gods and, and spirits and guardians and things like that. Other notable deities included Laka, Kihawahine, Haumea, Papahanaomoku, and most famously, Pele, the soccer god. <laughs> Just kidding. Pele was the goddess of volcanoes and fire and the creator of the Hawaiian Islands. Not really going to get into Hawaiian religion. I feel like that could take uh, its own deep dive by itself. Um, they have sort of like legendary history going back, like way back with stories of certain kings and rulers who fought against each other and, you know, stories of betrayal and all that kind of like moralistic tales of their own history. One important notable thing about Hawaiian culture before the arrival of Europeans was the Aikane which is a word that refers to relationships, mostly male, homosexual, or bisexual activity. Uh, and that was just a normally accepted tradition. These relationships were accepted as part of ancient Hawaiian culture. Uh, such relationships may begin in the teens and continue thereafter, even if they also have heterosexual partners. It was just a part of Hawaiian noble life, including Kamehameha I. And there are some like uh, Hawaiian myths that also refer to women's desire in that same term so it is possible that women were also like totally accepted to have homosexual relationships as well with the arrival of captain cook and europeans um his lieutenant lieutenant james king uh stated that all the chiefs had them and uh in his writings recounts a time that captain cook was asked by one chief to leave lieutenant king behind <laughs> you know to basically be his lover <laughs> the europeans were not not as uh accepting of that as the hawaiians were as you might have imagined mm -hmm. during this time under the the kopu uh the land was divided uh in strict adherence to the wishes of the ali inui who is the king um and so it was broken down by love by island and then uh subdivisions of the island and then uh subdivisions of those subdivisions which were called the Moku was a subdivision, and the Ahupua'a is a subdivision of that. Uh, and then one more smaller that kind of goes down into, like, individual plots. Mm -hmm. They had a very strict, like, structure to their culture. It wasn't a lot of our, our you know, Eurocentric views of any non-European uh, culture is that it's just kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, or they're savages or, or you know, they yeah. might not be savages, but it's just kind of like real simplistic, you know, primitive kind of things. That's clearly not the case. <laughs> like, they had a very strict order and, and, and clear, clear rules for things. So not, not to be Eurocentric, but, you know, there, it was an oral history. So we don't mm -hmm. have a lot of like written history of the Hawaiian Islands before the arrival of Europeans. Uh, so, with the arrival of Europeans, Captain James Cook led three separate voyages to chart unknown areas of the globe for the British Empire, and on his third voyage, he encountered Hawaii. He first sighted the islands on the 18th of January, 1778, and he anchored off the coast of Kauai and met with the local inhabitants to trade and get water and food. Then he continued on exploring uh, further across the Pacific. He returned near the end of 1778, 
and then he anchored in Kela Kekua Bay in January of 1779, restocked. Only a month later, the mast of his ship, the, the uh, Resolution, broke and they had to return once more to Hawaii to uh, repair. On the night of 13th February, while anchored in the bay, one of his only two longboats was stolen by the Hawaiians. This was a result of increased tension between his crew and the locals over, like, you know, resources and how they were interacting and all of that. It it wasn't just like, out of nowhere, the Hawaiians stole a boat. Like, this had been coming. So in retaliation, let's ramp it up, Cook tried to kidnap the Ali'i Nui of Hawaii Island. Uh, his name is Kalani Opu'u. Mm-hmm. On, on February 14th, he went to the king and said, hey, come with us. And the king was like, all right. <laughs> like, the king didn't really worry about it. He just, like, went with him peacefully. Uh, and as they were walking back to the ship, the queen and the other, like, uh, some other um, high, higher-ups who kind of knew what was happening uh, gathered a, a group of, uh, of inhabitants one of the royal attendants approached Cook as they were heading back to the ship. Uh, he struck the attendant with the broadside of the sword, and uh, another Hawaiian struck Cook over the head, while uh, a third one stabbed him in the back. And that is where Captain Cook died, on the shore of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. However, they treated him, the, the Hawaiians held him in pretty high regard, and after he was killed, uh, they prepared his body with, with funerary rituals usually reserved for chiefs and high elders. Like, the bones were carefully cleaned and preserved. And because they were well-preserved, uh, they were able to be returned to the crew for a burial at sea. But that is the first encounter of Europeans with Hawaiians, is with uh, Captain Cook. Soon after Cook's uh, encounter and like the spreading of his writings, uh, plenty of other Europeans and, and Americans uh, soon made their way to Hawaii. So shortly after this, the Kingdom of Hawaii was established in 1795 by King Kamehameha I. Uh, he fought a war of unity to unify the islands and did so successfully by 1795. For his first royal residence, the new king built the first Western-style structure in the Hawaiian Islands known as the Brick Palace. And it became the seat of government for the Hawaiian Island or for the Hawaiian Kingdom until 1845. He commissioned it to be built at uh, Kauaiki Point in Lahaina, Maui, and it was built by two ex-convicts from Australia's Botany Bay Penal Colony. <laughs> um, it was begun in 1798 and completed in 1802, and it was intended for uh, one of his wives, Kaahumanu, but she refused to live there and instead stayed in a uh, traditional Hawaiian-style home. Uh, Kamehameha I died in 1819 and was succeeded by his son, Liholio. After Kamehameha I's death, Liholio left Kailua for a week and then returned to be crowned king. However, his mother, not his mother, uh, another wife, the most prestigious of Kamehameha I's wife, wives, uh, upon his return said to him, Hear me, O divine one, for I make known to you the will of your father. Behold these chiefs and the men of your father, and these your guns, and this your land, but you and I shall share the realm together. 
to which he agreed. And hmm. that began a unique system of dual government consisting of king and co-ruler. So she was kind of like a regent, but he also had power. She defied Hawaiian kapu, the, the strict taboo, by dining with the young king, which basically led to the end of that whole tradition and also the end of the Hawaiian religion. Uh, that kind of made everything sort of fall apart from the traditional aspect uh, because mm. uh, sexes during meals had to be separate before that. Uh, Kamehameha II died along with his wife, Queen Kamamalu, in 1824, in a state visit to England, succumbing to measles. Get your vaccines. Mm. Their remains were returned to Hawaii by Boki, who was a high chief. On the way back, his wife was baptized as a Christian, and then the uh, the queen regent, the queen, the dowager queen <laughs> regent, whatever, uh, Kamehameha I's wife, uh, also converted and became a powerful Christian influence on Hawaiian society uh, from that point until her death in 1832. During the 1800s, uh, sugarcane became a major export for Hawaii, uh, and the first permanent plantation began in Kauai in 1835. Massachusetts-born man William Hooper released 980 acres of land from Kamehameha III and began growing sugarcane, and within 30 years, plantations operated on the four main islands and severely increased American influence uh, because... These Americans were owning plantations and running them, uh, which began to get the U.S. government involved in the Hawaiian government. And uh, U.S. plantation owners demanded a say in kingdom politics. This was not only due to sugar economics, but also missionary religion. In 1843, there was a brief takeover by the British, and Kamehameha responded to their demands with the Great Mahele, which was a uh, distribution of lands to all Hawaiians, as advocated by certain missionaries. Kamehameha III also tried to modernize Hawaii's legal system by replacing indigenous traditions with Anglo-American common law, uh, but that ended up actually mostly disenfranchising a lot of uh, native Hawaiians. Uh, during the 1850s, the U.S. import tariff on sugar from Hawaii was much higher than the import tariffs Hawaii's were, Hawaiians were charging the U.S., and Kamehameha III sought reciprocity, uh, but that was denied by the Senate. However, uh, the Reciprocity Treaty of 1875 did come into effect, uh, and after that treaty, sugar production expanded from 12,000 acres to 125,000 acres by 1891. Uh, but the U.S. showed little interest in renewal after the seven-year term of the treaty, uh, which then caused put economic strain on Hawaii. On January 20th, 1887, the United States began leasing Pearl Harbor. Shortly afterward, a group of mostly non-Hawaiians calling themselves the Hawaiian Patriotic League began the Rebellion of 1877. They drafted their own constitution on July 6, 1887. Uh, it was written by Lauren Thurston, who was the Hawaiian Minister of the Interior and who used the Hawaiian uh, militia to threaten uh, Kalakaua, who was the uh, king at that time. Kalakaua was forced to dismiss his cabinet ministers and signed a new constitution, greatly lessening the monarchy power. This became known as the Bayonet Constitution because it was adopted under threat of force. Uh, this was during the presidency of Glover Cleveland. He sent instructions to the American minister in Hawaii that in the event of another revolution in Hawaii, it was a priority to protect American commerce, lives, and property. Hmm. Uh, which essentially established the precedent that if things go bad in Hawaii, we will step in. 
Um, this new constitution really benefited foreign plantation owners. Uh, it weakened the king significantly uh, and altered the legislature as well that they had established. Along with voting privileges, Americans could also hold office and still retain their American citizenship, something not afforded in any other nation. Hmm. So, yeah, clearly America had plans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Wilcox Rebellion of 1888 was a plot to overthrow King Kalakaua and replace him with his sister, Princess Liliokalani. However, uh, it was discovered shortly before it was meant to take place, and it failed. Uh, Robert Wilcox, who was um, a native Hawaiian officer who was kind of like whipping up the, the this this plot, he was exiled, uh, but pretty much nothing else came after that. Uh, Princess Leila Kalani was offered the throne several times by the missionary party who had forced a bayonet constitution on her brother, but she believed that she would become a powerless figurehead and rejected the offers. I wonder why she thought that. Yeah, right. Uh, in January 1891, Kalakala traveled to San Francisco for his health, staying at the Palace Hotel, and he died there on January 20th. So then she took the throne. She took the, the throne during the economic crisis that I had uh, mentioned before. The McKinley Act had crippled the Hawaiian sugar industry by removing uh, the duties on imports from other countries. So uh, there was now much greater competition and Hawaii couldn't keep up. She controversially allowed opium li- or proposed opium licensing, hmm. but she pushed it through despite uh, despite resistance to that, uh, which led to some some tension. Lilia Kalani's chief desire was to restore power to the monarch by abrogating the 1887 bayonet constitution and making a new one. Uh, the 1893 constitution that she like put forward would have extended suffrage by reducing some property requirements. And it would have disenfranchised many non-citizen Europeans and Americans. Uh, she toured the islands and like campaigned for this. Uh, but when she informed her cabinet, they withheld their support, uncomfortable with what they expected their opponent's response to be. Uh, however, she still went forward trying to promulgate a new constitution on January 14th, 1893, which was the main precipitating event leading to the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii three days later. The conspirators to do so were five American, one English, and one German national, uh, and their stated goals were to depose the queen, overthrow the monarchy, and seek Hawaii's annexation to the U.S. So there we go. Uh, it was led by Thurston, who we had heard from before. On January 16th, Charles Wilson, the Marshal of the Kingdom, was tipped off by de- detectives of the planned coup. Uh, he requested warrants for the uh, 13 council members and put the kingdom over- under martial law. But because the members had strong political ties with the U.S., the requests were repeatedly denied by Attorney General uh, Arthur Peterson and the Queen's Cabinet because they didn't want to make the U.S. angry. So uh, Wilson, the Marshal of the Kingdom, began gathering uh, troops and uh, gathered nearly 500 men kept at hand to protect the Queen. Um, on January 17th, a policeman was shot at wind wounded while trying to stop a wagon that was carrying weapons to the Honolulu Rifles, which was a group of uh, paramilitary people. With that, um, about 1,500 uh, of uh, armed local non-native men, including the Honolulu Rifles and a group they called themselves the Committee of Safety, <clears throat> garrisoned themselves across the street from Ailani Palace and waited for the Queen's response. At this point, the U.S., Government Minister John Stevens was supporting that, and uh, with the stated support of the U.S. for this um, coup, uh, she was placed under house arrest. 
Mm. The kingdom became briefly the Republic of Hawaii, uh, but then was annexed by the United States in 1898. And at that point, it became the Territory of Hawaii, as we learned from the Jeopardy clue with the New Lens Resolution in mm-hmm. July of 1898. Uh, and so they treated it like other territories. They established a territorial government, which was uh, led by a, a governor appointed by the president, not uh, voted by the people of the territory. Uh, sugarcane plantations expanded during this time um, because now that it was U.S. territory, it became... It wasn't, you know, importing and exporting anymore as part of the country. Uh, Fast forward to uh, December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor is attacked by the Imperial Navy of Japan. That makes Hawaii kind of center stage for the Pacific theater. Uh, I'm not really going to get into the Pacific theater of World War II, but it became much more prominent in the American kind of identity uh, after that. In 1954, a series of nonviolent industry-wide strikes, protests, and other civil disobedience transpired in the islands. And in the territorial elections of 1954, the Hawaiian Republican Party in the legislature uh, was essentially demolished. (laughs) And the Democratic Party took over and then lobbied for statehood and held the governorship from 1962 to 2002. Uh, they also uni- unionized the labor-, labor force, which hastened plantations to climb. Mm-hmm. On March 18th, 1959, President Eisenhower signed the Hawaii Admission Act, which allowed for Hawaiian statehood. And after a popular referendum in which over 93% voted in favor, Hawaii was admitted as the 50th state on August 21st, 1959. For many Native Hawaiians, the manner in which Hawaii became a U.S. territory was illegal. Makes sense. Uh, Hawaii mm-hmm. territory governors and judges, like I said, were direct political appointees of the U.S. president. Uh, Native Hawaiians created the Home Rule Party to seek greater self-government. And uh, during the territorial and first, you know, early statehood, it, they were treated as a minority, which, you know, in the, a lot of the same way that we have treated other minorities, which is not good. The 1960s Hawaiian Renaissance led to renewed interest in the Hawaiian language, culture, and identity. Uh, with the support of Hawaiian Senators Daniel Inouye and uh, Daniel Akaka, Congress passed a joint resolution called the Apology Resolution. It was signed by President Bill Clinton in uh, November 1993, and it apologized to Native Hawaiians on behalf of the people of the United States for the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii on January 17, 1893, and the deprivation of the rights of Native Hawaiians to self-determination. The implications of this resolution have been extensively debated, <laughs> which means... Mm. It's nice words. And in 2000, Daniel Akaka proposed what was called the Akaka Bill to extend federal recognition to those of Native Hawaiian ancestry as a sovereign group similar to Native American tribes. But the bill mm. uh, did not pass. And so that's that's where I'm going to leave it. You know, talked fast, a lot of stuff. But 1778, Captain Cook gets there. Uh, he... he one trivia thing. He named the islands the Sandwich Islands after the Earl of Sandwich, who was the first Lord mm. of the Admiralty at the time. Kamehameha I united the islands. Then missionaries came and plantation owners. There are attempts to like curtail the influence of the, of the Europeans and Americans. Um, but eventually, through manipulation and military force, uh, it was annexed by the United States. Uh, the last monarch was Queen Leleokalani. It became a state in 1959. So there we go. Yeah, that was that was very helpful. And uh, 
and interesting. And I, I should have known more of that than I did. Um, but really good to hear it. So thank you. Yeah. All right. You ready for a quiz? Uh, yes, I am ready for a quiz. Okay. These questions are all uh, related to Hawaii in some way. Uh, question one. Given the impending holy day of Xmas, what Hawaiian phrase is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day? It's the island greeting that we send to you from the land where palm trees sway. I'm afraid I'm going to transpose a consonant or two. If you get it, like, close enough. It's like Melekalikimaka? Is that That it? That is it. Yes. Melekalikimaka, yes. Uh, according to Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters, at least. Nice. It does mean Merry Christmas, so it's not, like, wrong. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there you go. Good to know. Yes. Ten points. Nice. Hooray. Uh, I figured that one would be much more gettable at this point in the year than maybe, like, you know, six months from now. Mm -hmm. Okay, question two. The Kamehameha is the first energy attack shown in what animated series? It is the most widely used finishing attack in this series. It is the signature attack of the students of the Turtle School, as well as one of the main protagonists, Goku. Oh, no. Um, I can say with some certainty that I don't think it's Avatar The Last Airbender. And that's what I've... God. I'm going to guess Pokemon. I don't think that's right, but that's my guess. Oh, no. It is Dragon Ball. Oh, I know of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. I and wouldn't have thought of that, but sure. that's a... Yeah. Um, for however long I've known Dragon Ball Z, uh, that they say Kamehameha, and then they like shoot this big energy attack, and I was like, I wonder why. Uh, it turns out it is actually named after King Kamehameha, Akira Toriyama, the creator of the show, couldn't come up with a name for it. And so he asked his wife and she said that uh, he should call it that because it's a Kame attack and mm -hmm. and it would be easy to remember <laughs> because yeah. Kamehameha already exists. So mm -hmm. that's why it's called that. All right. All right. Uh, question three. Captain James Cook led the first European interactions with Hawaiians. However, the Sandwich Islands were not his goal. Instead, he continued on to North America, to the Pacific coast of North America, to search for what legendary waterway? Oh. To the Pacific coast of North America... Was he looking for, like, the Northwest Passage? He was looking for the Northwest Passage. Nice job. Oh, thank you. Yes. He didn't find it. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then even after he died, his crew went uh, went back up to continue looking for it, uh, and they just kept getting frustrated. So, uh, yeah. Nice job. Nice. All right. 20 points. You are at 20 points. Uh, question four. Uh, just this past week marked the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which marked the entry of the U.S. into World War II. The attack on December 7th, 1941, killed almost 2,500 people and sank the main American battleship fleet. Fortunately, the four Pacific aircraft carriers were not in port and escaped damage. Uh, the site 
is now home to memorials for a number of the battleships sunk there, including this one, on which nearly half of the fatalities occurred. Though Hawaii is now the newest state, this ship was named after what was then the newest. Oh. I don't think I know the battleship. It is what was the newest state at that time. Um, I'm so bad at this. It is the name of a state, right? Yes. So, I, I mean, it's like a two point something percent chance, even if I were to just blindly guess a state. <laughs> I um, like those odds. <laughs> um, now my brain is like telling me all of the first states, which is the opposite of helpful. <laughs> Not super useful right now. Yeah. Uh,. And now my brain is saying, remember the main? That's not it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, other part of the world for that, that and different time for that particular explosion. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. What about Arizona? Something about Arizona feels right. That's because Arizona is right. Yay! It is the 48th I mean, it, I mean state. tragedy, but... Yes. Yeah. Arizona is the 48th state. Yes, the USS Arizona uh, Memorial is... Um, Above the sunken hull of the USS Arizona, where uh, over 1,100 uh, sailors and Marines were killed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good job, Nice. Crane. Nice. Good pull. Uh, you have 30 points. We're on to question five. Since 1980, Hawaii has been home to which specific sporting event? The date varies from year to year but tends to be on the last Sunday of January or first Sunday of February. Um, Specifically played at the uh, Aloha Arena, I believe. Oh. Let me make sure that that's... Well, I was going to say some kind of Ironman triathlon, because I feel like lots of lots of those happen there, but that's not an arena. Well, Aloha Stadium, I'll say. Yeah. Aloha Stadium. Stadium. Er, stadium, that's right. Um... I don't know. Um, I'm struggling to even come up with a very good guess. 1980, Sunday, January, February, um, Aloha, Aloha, um, Aloha Stadium. Stadium, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to pass. Oh, it is the NFL Pro Bowl. Oh, okay. I was hoping that the Sundays near the end of January would uh, would kind of give it, would kind of point you toward football. Yeah, Sundays pointed me toward football, but I couldn't, yeah, no, I, I just, I couldn't quite get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, typically it is played uh, the week before the Super Bowl mm-hmm. so that they can make more money off of hype and advertisements for the Super Bowl by great doing, you know, by putting it, pushing it back another week. Uh, the problem with that is that all of the best players on the two best teams don't play in the Pro Bowl because they're preparing for the Super Bowl. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, when else are you going to do it? I don't know. Maybe yeah. in the middle of the season. Who knows? Uh, anyway. All right. You are at 30 points going into the final 
And uh, for the final, we will call this Famous Missionaries. Famous Missionaries. I'm not sure I know, like, if it's going to be a person who is a missionary connected with the Hawaiian Islands, I may not, like, no, no, like, no pre-guesses are coming to mind, which is making me nervous. I'll wager, I'll wager 21. Let's see if I can get over 50. Okay. Josef de Voister, a man of Belgian origin, was widely known for his work with patients of Hansen's disease. The site where he performed that work is now Kalaupapa National Historical Site on Molokai. What name is he better known by? And I can I can give a further hint if it's not pulling anything. Hansen's disease. Yeah, I need I need a hint. I think uh, Hansen's disease is the modern name for a disease uh, well known since biblical times. All right. The disease is leprosy. I'm almost certain. What name is he better known by? I don't know if I, like, if a name is coming to mind. So were there years in the clue? Uh, there were not, but okay. uh, I can All right. does say. It, does, it, do, does it matter? Um, um, the, the 19th century. 19th century. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, his mission work was uh, from 1873 to 1889. All right. If he's he's like a canonized saint, I'm not making the connection. So I guess he would, my guess is he would be known like by either some kind of um, moniker related to being a healer or maybe he got leprosy, um, was... Was he called Joseph the leper? He was not. Okay. All right. This was Father Damien. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, upon coming to uh, Hawaii and, and like, you know, being like formally frocked or whatever, uh, he took mm-hmm. the name Damien. Uh, yeah. So he's Father Damien of Molokai or St. Dami- Damien de Voister. Okay. Um, but yes. He's a. All right. He is a, He is now a saint. He was canonized, I believe, in two thousand nine, for his work with the lepers of the uh, colony on Palo Papa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did die of leprosy. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I'd I'd heard the name, but I didn't I didn't know the connection to leprosy. So, um, but that that's good to know. Um, uh, my husband and I went on our honeymoon in Hawaii, and my mother in law made us absolutely promised that we would not visit the leper colony which had not been on our mind sure <laughs> prior um, to the to the request but then we were sort of curious but we promised not to so sure um, it's it's pretty secluded uh it is on the kalupapa peninsula on molokai so you're not going to go through it um also leprosy is really not very contagious and uh uh, according to what I read, there are still a few patients there, but it's not like a full-blown colony like it was when Father Damien was there. He organized, yeah. uh, he, he turned it into a place for people to live rather than a place for people to go to die, is the mm-hmm. way that it's put. Um, yeah. So. Well, I'm well, sorry that uh, 
I'm I'm sorry that I gave you a tough quiz. Ah, no, it's, it was a good quiz though. Um, I don't know. You win some, you lose some. I I made the connection of who Father Damien was, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all learned something about Hawaii. Hopefully, indeed. Yeah. Hopefully, indeed. Um, well, thank you for a great deep dive and quiz, and for potting with me as oh, always. Of course, my pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or a review if you would be so kind. Um, if you're interested in che- checking out our Patreon, it's at Potent Potables. Um, and whether that is of interest to you or not, you can tell your friends about our podcast, especially if they're Jeopardy fans. That is right. Uh, and you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.